Welcome to Associated, the podcast making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois and I'm joined by Francesca. And this week we are super pleased to welcome Andy Davis, venture partner at Backstage Capital. In this episode, Andy talks about his eventful journey as a serial founder, the brilliant events he organises and attends, and top tips for both founders and investors. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. We massively appreciate it. I'm so excited to be here. Super duper excited. I thought we could kick off by finding out a bit more about your background. Let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? (laughs) Where where was I born? I was born in um, Barking and Dagenham. Um, So that's the London borough of Barking and Dagenham, which people don't consider to be London, who live in London, but people from there, half the people claim it's East London, the other half claim it's Essex. It's really like the first the opening of Essex, just post-East London. That's really interesting to me because I'm from near Manchester, so whenever I hear about like London dynamics, it means nothing to me, so I'm really pleased to have learned that. <laughs> you definitely aren't from London, that's... <laughs> sure, so went to school there, eventually went to a few universities, didn't finish uni because I, I don't consider myself a dropout, but I guess the system may qualify me as one. I was working in a startup, it was 2009 or something, 2010 so I got busy with that the last university I went to I was on a program at UCL which they were nice enough to give me like a scholarship for so I didn't have to pay for anything I didn't have to go and get um, student loans anything of the such and they then supported me with my startup just provided me with engineers and some other resources that's amazing do you want to tell us a bit about your startup sure so 2009-2010 I believe there was this um, this World Cup on, um, Football World Cup. When I say football, I don't mean the odd-shaped thing that some people throw around the air and also kick. And if you kick it wrong, it hurts your foot. I'm talking about the round one that, <laughs> that um, people enjoy watching and playing. And you put a website up that allowed you to predict the Premier League table before, before the season started. And if you predicted it right for the end of the season, you'd win £100,000. And... Um, so a few lessons there. We just pulled it up, and within a week, we had a few thousand people sign up. We didn't know where they were from. We were like really just using Facebook and YouTube on the internet. There were less, uh, a few big sites, but there were no real small sites that people were going to every day like they do today. Um, good and bad, had a team of eight working there. We had some partnerships with, I guess now the number one football highlight site, um, football news sites and stuff to provide us all this data and insights. And so one day I woke up and just felt like we weren't solving a problem. This was months later, of course, and decided that, hey, we shouldn't do this because we aren't really solving a problem. I can find all these things that we're doing online elsewhere. Um, but that was that was just following someone almost winning the £100,000 from us, and we didn't have the money. So I remember the week before the season ended, someone emailed us and was like, hey, I'm so close, I'm so excited. And on the day, we were like, do we delete this person's account? <laughs> because we haven't got the money. What, what this person wins? So we're watch, look at, watching the games all day and the fixtures really closely, just making sure, like, well, when it, when it gets to, like, 89 minutes. If this person's going to win, they're not going to win. <laughs> Maybe. Because um, we were super young. Um, and that was one of the first dips in startup land. And that was before startups existed, I guess, like they do today in London. And there was no real um, startup ecosystem. So at the time, even with the meetups, there were just a few of us going around to the same pubs and people's houses every month. Um, just discussing the same more things. That is a very interesting story, Andy. And I was going to say, when you were saying we're not solving a problem, I mean, and everything that you were doing, you could find online. I was like, well, you certainly can't find £100,000 online. (laughs) This is true. I was like, you're solving that problem. I mean, it's a bit unfortunate that you didn't actually have the money. But you you live and you learn, obviously, from that experience. So what happened after you kind of decided to close that business down. You obviously had the startup bug. So Sure. So I wanted to people that were building some interest in technology and worked with them on their companies. That were, I guess one of the first, the earliest things was something called CamNote. It existed years ago. And you'd basically take a picture of any, any notebook with text on that was written. 
and it was just converted to text. So it was, so OCR, and it was super early. Had this mobile product to cut it out, and at, back then, if you'd got like as we did about thirty thousand people using it um, every week, that was positive. Um, two of us on the team grew that, but I guess it's really interesting how every single week, um, Taufik and I, the founder, we'd have these conversations, and it's like, oh, there's more users and so much more interest. Now, and I'd always say, in a dying market, <laughs> people writing less and less every single week, but we're getting more and more customers, and we felt that, having spoken to a lot of investors as well, there was somewhat that sentiment that they shared with myself. So when she left and I joined Telefonica's startup accelerator, Waiwa, I went and interned when I probably shouldn't have interned because I was probably overqualified to be an intern, which they discovered maybe on day two. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thankfully, people, they liked me a lot, but they really they realized I wasn't an intern, so that wasn't the best. So there's like a WhatsApp group now of all previous interns, and every week someone just throws in a random question. What did Andy actually do or whatever? <laughs> it was like that. Did, did he actually do any work? Or was he just like floating around helping startups and not doing any intern stuff itself? entrepreneur in residence yes yes precisely an entrepreneur in residence um and I guess during that process actually my younger sister was in year six at school and that's the year before you go to secondary school in this country so so I attended a state school in Barking and Dagenham a state secondary school she attended a state primary school and then she got signed to an acting agency in year six um a good acting agency and I thought, let me do some research around where young British actresses and actors go to acting school. I was like, oh, let me look at like five or six of them. I'm a bit of an obsessive, so I ended up looking at 150 of them, putting it in the document, that's some spreadsheet, and then realised, I also put their secondary school down, and then realised that 93% of them went to an independent secondary. And I was like, ah, that's interesting. Oh, let me look at independent schools. Realised there's all these scholarships and bursaries out there. And it's just a matter of doing exams. And if you pass, you stand a good chance of getting in. So we um, studied really hard. So I, just, I think I discovered this all in September. Um, deadlines were October. Studied really hard, applied for, I think, seven schools, got into five. She now goes to a good school, one of the top schools in the country, thankfully. But during that process, I discovered the application process, which was all paper-based. So whilst at Telefonica, um, actually, the week I decided that I was going to do this UCAS for schools called Applied, we, I went to a in the, the independent school show in Chelsea, and it was on. I think I decided to run with the idea on a Wednesday, and the show was on a Saturday. Um, it's good timing. Went along, spoke to twenty seven schools, and said to them, "Oh, we are working." There was no we; it was just myself. We are working on the UCAS for schools. If you and I said to them, "If you're interested, contact me." I won't contact you. Give them my card. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks, 22 schools got in contact. Things got a bit too far with one school where I met with them and their legal team and or some, a legal person that worked, who worked at the school and their finance director. And they assumed that they were going to have a admissions solution um, in their hands the following month. So I left, I remember, I, I, remember I, I left the meeting and I was walking down the road to the train station and I was like, oh, I should really build this thing. I'm, gonna, I'm really going to F up the education system. <laughs> so... so I said to Telefonica guys, hey, I'm leaving to go raise money for this for this thing I have to do now. <laughs> and um, they were like, wait, you can't just leave. How about we be involved with one or two other people? So then they gave me some money while it was just an, whilst it was just an idea in my head. Um, and the positive and negative there was got some money really easily. Negative was it was, it was June that I got the money. Schools closed in June. I then... Yes, yeah, so we then built software, got to September, schools reopened. So we're like, oh, do we go raise more money or do we, I think I was 21 or 22 at the time, do we go raise more money or do we just sell to schools? And I was like, well, we can't raise money, we haven't made any sales yet, so let's go sell. Super long sales cycle, I think we were young and naive and assumed we'd break the super long sales cycle. Everyone we spoke with in education or ed tech said, told us the same thing, oh, the sales cycle's really, really long, you're... Like it's going to be two years, you need two years of money. We're like, no, we're young, we're going to break it. You lot are old. And that just wasn't the <laughs> Guess who was old? Our customers. <laughs> and um, it was such an archaic process. So we learned a lot about that the following year. It was about to run out of money. Well, close to run out of money, I think we had 20 or 30K left or something. And I just said to the investors, just keep the rest of the money. Um, we're, gonna, we're not going to, like, we're going to get some sales. 
but it won't be enough to hit our milestones to raise money. So we'll, we'll just burn the cash unnecessarily. So take the money back. And they said, oh, you've got great integrity for that. So whatever you do next, we'll back you. And then that led on to the next chapter, I guess. That's a really good story. And I really love the point about integrity because I think like one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which maybe we'll come on to later, is like what are some of the things that you really look for in founders? And integrity is super important, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And especially in the world where being a founder is glorified. And then, <laughs> then you realise that being a VC is like more highly glorified. I think there's a lot of vanity, right? And there's a vanity around the role and the titles and what our world is every single day, the work we do. And founders bring vanity to us when they come with these some metrics that just aren't best for their businesses or don't reflect the actual potential success in their business. And I see it all the time. And it starts with little things such as Twitter and Instagram followers, which don't reflect how well your business is doing to to number of customers in your pipeline, which is which is which is somewhat reflective when you dig deep and you realize that this is just like a, an email exchange and not an actual um, deal meeting with the customer then you realise it's all just van- a bunch of vanity metrics that people focus on because you get caught up in the game sometimes. But you learn that really early and that's majority first-time founders and we've all been there. I think... So admittedly, so I wasn't ever like that, but I don't think I gave myself... I, I had I had a lot of founders around me like that and I recognised it really early, thankfully. Mm-hmm. So And I've may- maybe I've been around for a long time, so I've always seen that. I think... Like, how do you approach that with founders? Because I think we probably all see that quite a lot, like inflated metrics or like, for example, I think customer acquisition cost is a big one and and people will, you know, um, use these formulas to come up with a number that sounds super impressive, but actually it doesn't tell you very much. But it can be quite tricky to have that conversation with them because it's, you know, it's quite a touchy subject and, and everyone's kind of sensitive in this business. I've come to realise that over time, you just you realise that even the hard truths and hard conversations are the most helpful thing for everyone. So I was at a startup weekend in Barkham Dagenham. This weekend was the first one there, so I spoke and I did some mentoring. And I said to a founder, he, he said, again, it was a client thing. He said he had these six, seven clients that were really interested, Nando's, Costa, the business doesn't really matter, right? But, um, <laughs> and then he was in talks with them. And I said, okay, tell me about the talks. He said, yeah, so I had a meeting I was like, okay, when was, the, when, was the last, when was the first meeting? And he said, oh, the first meeting was in like May or June. And I was like, oh, okay, have you had a second meeting? He said, not yet, but they're waiting on me for this. And I was like, okay, could you show me an example of something? Or like, just show me an exchange? And it was over email. And I said, actually, they were just like, happy to have the conversation. I said to him, that's not, that's not a customer. Like, that's simply a conversation. That's a name on a list, which is where you should start. But that's, that's basically it. So I said to him, now tell me who's going to be trialing this thing. Because you've said these companies, right, they should be trialing it in the next six months, but actually you haven't made any progress of them. Do they even want it? And I was like, if they want it, they'd, they'd give you something that indicates they do want it. They'd, they'd put you down the right person, they'd get an agreement in front of you, and then they'd pay for it. I said, and I would say to, to founders, until money's in the bank, money's not in the bank. And that's, and that's the same thing. The same thing applies there. And in the end, he just said, he was like, thanks so much. No one's ever been hard with me about this. And I was like, well, you just have to be in there. And I've learned that the hard way, right? You just have to be hard and hard on yourself and hard on founders. And that's just the best form of love in this world, I think. Yeah, I really love that. Um, so we both mentored on YSYS's Founders Door program. Yep. So I know that you do a lot of work with young founders. And from experience, I know that you can end up learning as much from them as they can learn from you. So I was interested to talk to you a little bit about what you what you get out of those interactions. So it's in, so it's interesting because if it were well, ten years ago or so when I was doing that football website, which I thankfully didn't lose hundred k on, I I didn't have anyone in front of me to necessarily mentor me or to look up to as a role model. All the role models were the traditional role models, the Bill Gates of the world, etc., the Oprahs of the world. But now there's founders everywhere that can talk to you. So I feel like giving back is really important. And, and something that we, we we started saying years ago, paying it forward. You just pay it forward. And they opened up my eyes. I always, I always say, um, my little cousin, who was on Founders though, actually, he tweeted. Uh, so I thought he tweeted to be nice. And the tweet, the tweet read something like, oh, you, oh uh, Andy Davis, something on Twitter. 
he inspires me so much. He's a massive role model for me. Something, something. So I got the notification. I was like, that's so nice of him. I tapped on it. I realized he was applying for something. And they said, I'm at your role model and you may get a chance of winning it. And I was like, what? This isn't even genuine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then, stay humble, Andy. Stay humble. <laughs> no, so, so, so I don't need recognition. I just mean... <laughs> I wanted to DM them and be like, listen, <laughs> I haven't spoken to him in 10 years, but that's not true. So, um, <laughs> so then he, he DMs me and he's like, oh, but I mean it. You're always there for me. You're like a big brother. Thank you. And I said, actually, I'm staying on my toes. Right? I have to stay close to you a lot as well because, so I get asked all the time, like, how do you stay hungry? And I'm like, well, I know that the Andy of 10 years ago is coming for my spot or it's coming for the spot above me or ahead of me. So I've got to stay hungry. I've got to stay on my toes. Because mm. when you're young, you've got all the energy in the world. You just run crazily and there's no stopping you. And I don't want that Andy catching up with me because if that Andy manages to catch up, <laughs> he or she's definitely going to surpass me. And I don't want that. So I said to him, actually, I'm just, I only talk to you so I can stay on my toes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a bit like that movie with Will Smith that's just come out. Have you seen that? Um, yes, yes, I have actually. I have. Yes, I have. It's a younger version of yes. that. Yes. Yeah, you don't want that. I mean, Will, Will Smith is getting into VC as well, isn't he? So. Yes, Will Smith wants to sponsor me or help me. We should get out to him. Hi, Will. I love you, Gemini Man. <laughs> Favorite film of the year. Yeah, no, it's like, and I'm, I'm going to bring you back to um, the next part of, of your story after the UCAS for Schools business. What happened next? So I was sending my younger sister to a, an, as I mentioned, an independent secondary. My godson to a state primary. Her independent is in Hampstead. His state primary is in Barking and Dagenham. So two opposite sides, opposite sides of London, opposite sides of the world, culturally and socioeconomically. But communication... And I, I was also um, doing guest lectures and was in Chippenham residence at Surrey University. So and I realized communication was bad everywhere. The reason why schools, so, so all the time, my sister's school every week would send out a, a stupid email and he'd be like, the year 13s climbed the mountain. Oh, the year, the year 10s create the socks business. I'd be like, oh, I don't care. How's she doing in class? <laughs> like, literally, I had no idea. So eventually I started asking. They were like, oh, well, we can't communicate that stuff with you because it's really expensive to do so. And I was like, why? And they were like, we're using these text message services and these email services where we only email parents once a month or so about like snow days or whatever it is. And I was like, oh, that doesn't make sense. The internet's free, right? Like, you pay for internet, don't you? Everyone has access. Before we did anything, I said, go and talk to customers, deeply understand the problem. Because that's one thing about me. I don't think I'm particularly good at anything. The one thing I'm okay at is probably problem solving, and that happens to be enough in this world. So eventually landed on a one-way group communication tool from teachers to students and parents and got a first version together, really simple product. And as you, and then went, I guess, from September to the end of the year, went and spoke to so many schools. And there was a, a few lessons there. The school market's really competitive, it's really hard. Getting into schools, a lot of people, a lot of edtech startups all take the same path. There's, they're all emailing schools and sending, some people get creative and send letters and um, DM teachers on Twitter and do different things. I think we, um, we did well to work around that somewhere. So hitting a stick, hitting, hitting the wall, trying to, I don't know, acquire schools. Then when, again, thinking really deeply about stuff, where do, where do students spend their time? And you realise that I spoke to a lot of students, spoke to my sister and her friends. I realise there's a lot of after-school clubs and these um, um, homework clubs and things of the such. So decided, like, oh, instead of... So we're going, so two things, I guess. We were first going to these large schools because it's great if you get a big-ticket school on board. And then thought, mm, how about we go to all the small schools around them? So when we go back to them, we can say, actually, we've got all these schools on your borough. Now you don't have a choice but to use this. That worked. And also... Well, it got all the after-school clubs on, on board in certain areas. So I go back to them and said, oh, 40% of your, school, of your student base has already signed up. All of a sudden, it was like such a faster movement from them. Um, and we saw it work really well. And then so some positives happened, right? So a team of, small team of um, 2.5 or three of us, one of the founders part-time, got some money together, together pretty easily because, because we had this traction, of course, um, and the, the product's been fastly adopted. And it was a messaging product, so like if there was a success metric, it would be like thousands of messages sent per week or per day, whatever it was. Um, but then there, because the previous company didn't have any, didn't get traction. So whenever, whenever my co-founders and I sat down to discuss like equity and stuff, I was like, it doesn't matter, let's get traction first, let's get traction first, we can sort this stuff out later. 
got money pretty easily and they learned some hard lessons there where, oh, we got to like product market fit and there's this like product market fit myth, right? Always like, ask a founder, how do you know when you're at product market fit? And they, I used to think they give a ridiculous answer which was, oh, you just, you just know, one day you just know. And I used to think that was really stupid until I got to product market fit and that was the truth. And I was like, oh, one day you just know. <laughs> you kind of wake up and you're like, oh, Mm, oh, there's all this data and people are using it actively, using it exactly as it should be used without you having to acquire any users, do work to acquire users, word spreads or they discover it somehow and that means you built something that's right for the market. Problem with that was because we did that and got money pretty easily and we were getting a thousand messages sent but I think maybe greed kicked in in one or two places and the founders as a founding team weren't happy working together because people wanted different things and if it were one of our, one of our co-founders at the time if it were, oh, I don't want you to be able to fire me, I want like your CEO fine, but I should be able to fire you if I want to as well. I want to be on the board. This is that young team, and you just learn a lot of lessons. So, it, and it was such a negative working environment that I remember I said to my investors, I was like, hey, let's talk. And they're like, okay, well, let's do this. Like, how about we give you the money back? And, and I always said, my happiness isn't important. Let's just focus on the company. Um, but it was, because we became so unhappy together. So we ended up giving investors the money back. And it was annoying because it was, it was growing fast and um, we were doing well and we hit product market fit super early. Um, but it just told you, actually, you can't mess up with stuff inter internally. So first time is, it's external. And then it told you the other side of the coin with startups, which is, which is internal. Um, so we shut it down. And then annoyingly, all the customers who I was communicating with or trying to communicate with over the last like, few months, emailed them, hey, like some big school in Canada, you found our product, you're using it, you've shared your messages for a whole year and eventually sending seven, eight emails a week to them just to have a conversation because they love the product so much and just getting a go away reply once in a while. Then I got a lot of phone calls when we shut down mm. and it was like, where's this product? You're messed up our education. I'm using it. I'm using it instead of um, Blackboard and all these things. And I was like, ah, this is a problem. And that was the only part that like bothered me, right? All, all the other stuff, my, um, my founders and all this other stuff, didn't really bother me, all lessons for me, but that was the part because I was like, actually, actually solved the problem. Mm. And um, yeah, but it was, it was a good lesson like in hindsight because I think there's something important about knowing how to get a product out that people use and getting to product market fit and having people discover it and tracking data and growing and optimizing um, every week. Uh, yeah. There's a part of that story that really stands out to me, which is the point at which you went back to your investors and were like, listen, we're unhappy. The founders are unhappy. Here are some of the issues that we're having. And you felt able to have that really honest conversation, which I think is amazing. Like, that's the ideal relationship that you could have with an investor, isn't it? And it's like what I strive for with, with all the founders that I work for. Like, how do, you, how do you find getting to that point in a relationship? Sure, so... I think it's in hindsight, I think it was hard, right? It was um, maybe it was disappointing on on both sides, especially on their side. They were like, especially because they just kind of gave me the money after that one meeting, and and their feedback, their their feedback and advice was just give this founder whatever he wants, um, which wasn't the best feedback in my opinion. Even now, because it's doing so well, right? like actually, you've somehow landed on something that's just like doing well, and I was like, well. Not saying we could do it again, but it's more like that doesn't actually matter here. This is super negative, right? This is like we can't even communicate. Can't ha like it's just struggling to hire now. I have new people around because it's kind of it's not toxic, but it's negative. Um, even when it comes to us working on a product together for certain customers, um, with integrations, if it's a big university, um, <laughs> just like less enthusiasm around it than there should be, um, and that just puts hurdles in the way. So. It, it was it was tricky. We had the conversation, I think. But you get to that point where I think if you're a good person, if you show integrity, and it, it's hard to, but like if you show integrity, you don't get caught up in the game and the world of startup land. They see that because they're people too, right? And the more honest you are with your investors, the better. Mm -hmm. um, and I say this all the time when it comes to founders, even now sending monthly updates or quarterly updates, if you're if you've invested or not. I always say put lowlights in there, highlights and lowlights. Lowlights just like the negatives of the, of the last month. Not so like you should for shame or anything of the such. It's more so we can help. Mm. And on two or two fronts. So we can help if we can. And secondly, so we can see how you progress through those lowlights as well. Um, and that's really important. And that transparency is what people respect. Yeah, I really like that because I think there's often this myth where um, this intimate relationship, maybe that's not the right word, but like this but really close relationship between an investor and a founder 
is seen as this almost unattainable thing in a lot of relationships and you have to work for it and you have to WhatsApp them every day and stuff. But actually what you just said about putting your lowlights in your monthly update opens that relationship up to all your investors. And I, I really like that. I think that's really achievable. It is. Um, and I think I've always had that relationship. So even if it's um, what, what I did next, right, with... Um, so, I've been, so as I was shutting that company down, a friend of mine was starting a health tech startup and so by the time I shut it down, I was doing some consulting, then she gave me a call, was like, hey, can you come in and help me with some stuff? I think she had got a bit of capital together, but but retention was super low at that point. Um, I think when, I first, when she first spoke to me about it, it was like super low, and there was like three of them on the team, and the company was basically maybe going to die. And it was a mobile product for taking, taking healthcare professionals from symptom to diagnosis and a few simple accurate steps. And you'd go to these um, academic institutions, like be it the um, the hospitals or the medical schools, and you'd onboard the students. Guess what? I'd done something similar with a mobile product prior to that, so I kind of understood it. And um, so I was right fit for that. So she called me, and, she, and I spent some time like, helping out with some stuff. Then it was like, hey, can you come on board the founding team? And actually, <laughs> I don't know what investors know, actually. But, um, and... Um, like, help me be CEO per se, right? <laughs> um, and I just said, it's best I come in actually without a title because I also run a community here of all like the seed stage black founders here or pre-seed to seed stage black founders and um, all the black VCs in London. And it's like an intimate stage agnostic WhatsApp group. What's it called? It's called 10x10. Um, there's no way to find it online. There's no Twitter, there's no website, there's no Instagram or anything of the such. And that's for two reasons. One, it's been going five years. Um, that's probably, that's not what a reason. It's been going five years, but one, it's because I haven't been bothered, haven't thought about it, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, secondly, it's because, and probably more importantly, I genuinely believe that great products, um, people find them. And they, when they solve problems, people talk about them and they get in the hands of the right people. And if you look back in even the smallest villages in the world, those communities just help each other. And I always said, that's what this community is like. And that's pre that assumption's proven correct. So when I... So the healthcare tech startup's called MDX. So actually, as I went to join, instead of coming in and being CEO or being CEO or whatever it was meant to be, maybe, I just said, let me flow and let me just come and help because I'm eventually going to leave to do something for these founders if it's diverse founders or black founders because I care about that so deeply and I think if a CEO leaves a company it always looks negative <laughs> so um, yeah and it's it's hard optics wise so I came in thankfully I came in I went, I went out with some money brought a team together hired my um, not my co-founder of the last startup that was problematic but <laughs> prior to that um Hired uh, one or two friends of mine who who were running startups um, years ago who I knew and built the team out, got to 13 of us, monetized the product, redesigned the product, increased engagement, got good levels of retention, and it's now used in several countries, which is positive. And I was doing that in backstage capital. So I'll tell you, our backstage came along, but I was doing that in backstage capital at this, together um, for like six months when backstage started and then last November, about exactly a year ago, I left that company to run backstage full time. Um, and then my other, and then one of my other two partners at backstage joined full time the following month. Um, yes. So I'm like massive fangirl of backstage. Hello. So hello. <laughs> so I just want to hear a bit more about that. What's, sure. Can you tell us about the mission and a little bit more about like, I don't want to say how you got the role. Like such a natural fit, and I know that you know, these kind of roles don't get recruited in a traditional way and it's important to be transparent about those things. Sure. So, like, can you just tell us a bit about how you got into it? 100%. So, first, Backstage Capital is a diverse VC fund investing in women, people of colour, LGBTQ, disabled and immigrant founders. Um, investing for the last four years. Started in the US by a gay black woman called Arlen Hamilton started doing what we refer to as opportunity checks, so twenty-five dollars to $50,000. Uh, and that, that meant if you had an idea or you 
were testing it in some really light form MVP, Backstage would then give you some money to then help take it to the next level somewhat. And not too much money, of course, but it would, did 100 of those investments, 98 in the US, two in the UK. I think prior, that was all prior to um, summer 2018. And then Ireland came over and she wanted to open up shop in London. So when she came, a friend of mine, Andy, Andy Iam, he had been like, I guess, following her career and her progress and just hosted one or two events for her here, asked me to help out with some founder stuff with the events here. She wanted to meet investors when one of the last times she came in 2018 and because of my history, I guess, with my investors and different people, so I organized for, some inve- her, for her to meet some investors and on that day, she announced that, actually, well, privately in the room, like, hey, we're gonna, we want to open up in London. She, want, and she wants Andy as one of the directors, Andy Iam. And then when we left that meeting, she said at the end, hey, why aren't we working together? And I said, well, it's on you, then it's on me. So you get get something to me, and then I have to think about it and my life and um, what it is I want to do. And she had her team, I don't say they followed me to an event I went to afterwards, because I think they, they went to get something to eat, and they were like, you come and I said, actually, I know I've got to go to um, the launch of One Tech, I think it was. Um, Capital Enterprise is One Tech, and YSYS is One Tech. And the team were there, and they were all nice, and she came. That was great. And I think they did, they did come for the ecosystem event itself. Um, and then I think Andy followed me to the train station afterwards because he lives in the opposite, in the opposite direction, but <laughs> just wanted to have a conversation with me. So, oh, like, really, she really wants you the team, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think? And I was like, get something to me. Again, I'm the guy that says, until the money's in the bank, it's not in the bank. So I was like, get something to me, and then I'll see. And um, eventually, Ireland did. And so oh, Andy and Nisa and I, um, and Nisa is a part-time partner. She runs a coding school called 23 Code Street, part-time. So she had, so her capacity at backstage, backstage is part-time as well. So we, the three of us opened up shop in London last July um, to do $100,000 investments this year. That's so exciting. But um, just a little bit of a backtrack, because you've been going since the end of November. What what have you done since then? And obviously, up sure. the ante on the 100 yeah. <laughs> next year, which is so exciting, yeah. So in, in London here, we made five investments and five, so four consumer startups and one B2B health tech startup, which wasn't too dissimilar to the health tech startup I was previously running, so understood it quite well. They're from Kenya and... Um, that's deep tech. And that that's super interesting because when we say that we're really stage agnostic, we're sector agnostic, um, we mean regionally as well, of course. And we've learned a lot even just investing in international teams and what it's like recruiting and even for them finding out where, they, where, should, where should home be. If it's London, if it's San Francisco, if it's Nairobi, um, a lot of lessons along the way. I probably haven't answered the question you asked me to, <laughs> to answer. No, no, you definitely did. And a lot of um, VCs sort of have a value add. What would you say, apart from your wealth of experience that you've had building your own startups, would you say the three of you bring to the table? So, so one, I'll go back a little bit. So once upon a time, <laughs> with one of my investors years ago, I was in the same office as several of the, several of the other um, investees, so the portfolio companies, the founders. And I remember we had this annual meeting with our investors just on like, they wanted to discuss how everything had been going to everyone. They wanted, wanted us to all spend time together because that's a good use of time. And following that, I think like they, we had this interesting meeting where it was meant to be all love and it ended up being a lot of anger actually for like for some odd reason. Um, just expressing how unhelpful one of the how how much how, how much more helpful the investor could have been and wasn't um, and then following that I then sent them an email and see I sent the investors an email and CC'd all the founders in and I just called it care and I was like actually this is what caring is and I thought that's that's what the three of us do really well and I thought that's what the best investors do really well they just care they care very deeply about you as founders you as people. They care about your startup. They care about your journey, and they understand. But, and they're there for you in good and bad times because they care. They they win when you win because they care. They, when you lose, 
and they aren't around is because they don't care. That's why the low lights thing, again, we see low lights and where we can help, I, always rep- I try to always reply. And I'm like, hey, actually, I know someone that can help with this or here's my um, two pence on it. It's because I care. And I, I'm up night and day with founders on the phone in their offices, just helping with various things because I care and being an extended part of their team. Do you know how many founders you're supporting at the moment? So I guess the answer is the answer is no. I think I so every month I meet so meeting and supporting two different things. But every month I probably meet about one hundred to one hundred fifty companies, and supporting. It's weird, right? So WhatsApp is the worst place in the world um, for me at the moment because. It's bombarding the text messages as well. It's bombarded with founders. And founders sometimes, other founders just call because they have a number. And I support where I can and I try to help. So maybe if I were to take a stab at the number, every week probably, I don't know, maybe five to ten different founders. And that means it's 20 to 30 different founders every month. And it's a lot. And it is, it's exhausting you have mm. to find a way you have to find balance and I feel like the best way to do it is create systems for yourself so if it's me saying that Thursdays and Fridays are founders days and the rest I get to do work because the way my week is split is just like 20% I, I can break down the week but there's always of the week a month there's 20 to 30% of that which is just the unexpected yeah I think I mean that's insane so there are like 150 companies and founders on your radar at any given time and you've just talked about the importance of caring and like, I totally believe that you do care about each individual one. And the reason I ask is just because I think it's really important to share that, just the scale of it, like the sheer volume of companies. Like, I see probably fewer than that, but I look at companies earlier on and, like, um, it tends to be from a distance initially. But we can look at, like, 5,000 every quarter at a distance, not speaking to them. (laughs) But a couple of hundred I would speak to every quarter. So... I think the reason I think it's important to talk about is because it gives, let's say, like prospective investors or founders a sense for the scale, like the, the absolute magnitude of how many people you're not competing against for capital necessarily, but for people's attention and like good people's attention. And it's about being helpful as well, because if you can't help, let them know you can't. I always say, send me an email with, ev- with whatever you need. And if I can't help, I will send what I can help with, I will. And what I can't, I will send it onto my network. And if we can, I'll let you know. And that way, there's no mismanaged expectations. Um, I, so every, every month, actually, I send out a monthly email. Um, well, maybe when I can now. I need to create better systems of just inv- of investments, right? And some deals I see. So if I see all these companies, I think, Francesca, I've sent you maybe one or two things. Yes, thank you. Yes, and um, that's hard because then founders now, they hear about it. They're like, oh, some founder said you emailed some investors for them and you put them in contact with several investors and can you do the same for me? And I'm like, well, it has to be the right fit for the investors and the right fit for you. And and I find that really, now I'm finding it easy. I think over time, it, it's all really hard, right? Like you asked about the conversation with investors regarding giving money back and integrity and, and even them going, oh, I think we should have money, but that makes sense, yeah. These are hard conversations, but over time they become easier because you just get used to it. That's why even now in the emails, I just reply to whatever the request is. I'm like, what do you actually want or need? And they're like, hey, it's A, B, C, and D. Oh, I want to talk to you about these, these things. And I'm like, here's my opinion in the email, boom. And that, that's me being super helpful because I always say the more, of, the more of my time I have free, the more time I can allocate to doing the more scalable work. So if that's like the 10x10, the group, so with the group, with the VC group, every month we do office hours, every quarter we do some sort of event for a lot of the black founders in the ecosystem. And then a bunch of us meet with them and have calls throughout the month anyway. But that, I get the time, when I'm free, I get the time to organize stuff like that, and which is more helpful for a lot of people at once. If it's the event we're doing, where are we? November next month, it will be next month. Um, it, was, it was actually called How to Get into VC for Black and Mixed Race people. That will be, that's going to help. There's going to be 100 people attending. I get, if I'm free, I get the time to organize something that can touch 100, 100 people at once in one, in one morning or one evening. 
Um, if I'm not, I don't get the chance to do that. So there is some, there is some gold to me being unavailable once in a while. And you've mentioned loads of events, actually, which has been really, really helpful. But are there any others that spring to mind that you would recommend um, people go to, whether they want to get into VC or are a founder and want to get investment? But the ones that you're hosting sound amazing. Thank you. So the ones that we do, so if you're a Black or Mixed Race founder, we do monthly office hours, and I can share details to reach me at. Um, to get to hear about those and apply. If you're, if you want to get into VC, so I, I feel there's like some traits of being a good, good venture investor. I think understanding stuff, and I feel like you understand more over time. Of course, deep dive in the ecosystem. Go to Tech Hub's de- demo night, for example. Like little things like where you get to sit down and hear a pitch. Hear you're not hearing investors give feedback. But you're hearing potential customers give feedback. You're hearing other startup founders who somewhat think alike, but they, a lot of them understand what good and pro- bad products feel and look like besides their own, because as soon as you, you're up there with your own products, you're like, oh, my product's so great. Um, and then some, some of them are, the Tech Hub demo nights are super great. I'd say subscribe to the right thing. So Startup Digest have a list of events on a, they, they, they send out on Mondays for the week, which are great. Subscribe to the right newsletters such as Fem Street. Uh, my partner uh, backstage, Andy, I am. He released. He has a pretty good newsletter actually. That once in a while he was always telling me off. He was like, "Oh, I know you haven't opened my email." And I'm like, "Oh, what? I did it. I did not open it. Um, I've started opening it since. And it's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really good." Um, what else? I subscribe to A16Z. I think re- literally, no word of lie. Um, sifted, um, like interesting content, read what smart people are reading. If you want to be in venture, read what the VCs are reading. If you want to be a founder, go where the founders are to the demo nights. Go to the indie hackers do some interesting things now. So on Sundays, I believe it's every Sunday, they just allow a group of like 20 or 30 people to get into a room together and just do work, do their own work. And there's a shout out moment. So if anyone needs any help with anything that day, you shout out and then someone else has to commit time to helping you. And I've heard from a bunch of um, entrepreneurs that it's a super great way to like save them weeks of work. That is amazing. Thank you. Um, and I think you were going to come on to what you think makes a good founder. Yep. So uh, I think we touched on integrity. That's really important. I think the best people in the world obsess over the problem that they're solving. And obsess doesn't just mean talking to, it means talking to customers night and day and understanding customers very, very deeply. But it also means making it your life. And if you ask, if you ask me or a bunch of other people who, who the best founders are, when you name them, it's just people who are super obsessive. And they've got that one thing to them where they just, all they do is live and breathe this startup. And it depends on what you want in life. But if you're going down the, if you're a startup founder who's going down the venture path, you have to obsess. You have to think about it 24-7, night and day. It has to be your world for the next seven to 10 years. It just has to be. And I think, so the ability to obsess over customers, over product, over how you deliver and execute, highly important. If there's anything else I like to see, it's, it's that deep insight. I, w- I want to know, what, what have you seen in this market that no one else has seen? What do you know that no one else knows that's going to give you that special insight to win? Okay, so now we're going to come on to a question from someone in our community, uh, someone who reached out when they knew that you were going to be on the show. Big fan, I assume. Um, This is from Alex, and Alex wants to know, what is the single most important trait or factor that increases a startup's likelihood to raise the investment that they're looking for? Validation. Validation, validation, validation. All that matters in the early days, that's it. Just go and validate whatever it is you've built. That means get customers who, who want and need it and prove that. That's it. So Jen, who used to be at Backed, Jenny, um, with, so I use the example in the presentation now, with thing testing, right? So she starts taking pictures of products, put it on Instagram. I was following so long ago, so I remember it was just like a few hundred people were liking it, and it was all, it was cool. And I was, I was telling a lot of people about it. I was like, this is so exciting. I love this page. Um, 
And it gets to the point where a lot of people are following it because people know that that's what she does and you follow it if you're interested in D2C products and you're interested in her reviews. And then it gets so much traction that people start DMing her asking they can pay to post products, right? And all of a sudden, then that all happens manually, like whatever, if it's email or DMs and she posts their products after they pay. And she's got validation that she can build a review platform. So then she leaves her job. When was it? She left her job in June, I, I believe, June 2019. And then in August, a few months later, she gets some um, angel investment, I think $300,000 um, from one of the founding investors at Homebrew and a bunch of others. And now it's going to become this review, review, review platform. Why does that happen? Because she focused on validation. She was just validating that she's, that she's come across something that people actually want or need, and the data shows that. So focus on validation. And I literally believe that 90% of the products out there, and especially the consumer products, you can validate really cheaply, really lightly, or even for free with a spreadsheet, text message, email, or an Instagram page or Twitter account. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think a common misconception when you ask for validation is, oh, I need to build the whole thing and then check that people like it and use it, when actually you can get validation just from going talking to some people. Yep. Valid- it's so, so precisely, right? And, uh, and I think we have to understand how competitive the market is as well. If you're, someone said to me last week, oh, hey, I've got 5,000 people on a waiting list. And I was like, okay, when are you going to launch? And he said, well, next spring. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, oh, so I want some money for X and Y. And I was like, oh, that's weird. If you said to me that you had 200 people using it every single week, that'd be way more interesting. Mm. But I just came up with validation. Like, do people actually want this thing? You can have people on a waiting list, um, but until people are using it, you haven't validated that people people really actually want the products you service you've built. You've you validated that there's interest, but I can have and again vanity metrics. I can have an excessive amount of people, followers on Twitter, or Instagram, or whichever platform, unless people are actually engaging in the capacity that um, I need them to to solve the problem. Then you haven't validated it. Yeah, for sure. So there are like stage gates of validation. So you might validate an idea by talking to people and being like, do people say they want it? But then obviously the golden rule that you can't trust what (laughs) consumers say they want. (laughs) So then you have to build something, but it doesn't have to be the whole thing. You could build a prototype and check how people are using it. Yep, 100%. Great. Thank you very much for that answer. Alex will put you in touch with Andy. Yep, Alex, let's do it. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us. We're coming to the close. Um, Given that this podcast is all about wanting to broaden access to VC and whatever way that might be, are you hiring at the moment? So, backstage we'll be hiring again. I think we need to have probably another team meeting about all this stuff. (laughs) But um, before I give a date, put dates out. But let's say, if it's not end of Q1, let's say in Q2 2020. um, And if I were to leave a tip for anyone who wants to get into venture, who isn't in yet... I feel that for the past for the past maybe few years, as I previously mentioned about the investor emails I send out, go and find good startups and send them to investors. Or join a scouts program, um, wherever they are there, if it's at Ada Ventures, if it's at Backed, uh, or a few other places who are doing scout programs nowadays, go and join those scout programs because that, that's a good way in and just prove that you can you understand what good and bad startups look like, or you, or you learn. You learn. You send ba- a bunch of bad startups out, and when you get feedback on them, you understand what's bad about them as well. And all, I would recommend not only just jump into venture, but go working at a startup that's growing because you gain a lot of experience there that will be relevant to early stage venture, especially. What do you think about fantasy portfolios? When you say fantasy portfolios, <laughs> I mean the idea that you collate this like group of startups that you would invest in, hypothetically, if you were a VC, and then you track their progress? Yeah, I do that. Of course. I have a fantasy portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> you just outed yourself as such a nerd. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's important. I think, I think being able to give reasons why. So you can say, you can easily go, hey, I would have done Robin Hood, um, <laughs> Klarna, whatever, Carter, whatever startups are. I think find them early with reasons. And so access is really interesting. I was going to say then also how you would access that deal. Mm. But maybe the access would be the money. 
Because if you had the resource or the capital, that would be your way in, mm. right? Because founders at some point need money. So without the money, it's hard to even say you wouldn't have a way in. But fantasy portfolios, yes, I think that's good. It shows some insight. Again, it's like what I said about sending out deals. We can just say, I've seen these interesting startups. So something that um, I've been advising a bunch of associates to do actually is, um, especially at consumer venture funds, have the product, so what I've got, I've got the product on Chrome extension. So every time I open a new tab, I see the products of the day. And I told a bunch of founders, because we have these groups, say that the Tenet Send group, I throw stuff in. People are like, wow, you found a really good product. No, it wouldn't be, wow, I found a really good product. It literally took me 10 seconds to see it in the morning, <laughs> right? Depends on what you want, right? And like your founders, you've got to focus on, on other stuff. And I've been a founder. But seeing which products could be helpful to my business every single day is interesting. As a venture investor, you want to see as many startups as possible so you don't miss any. And a lot of them launch on Product Hunt nowadays. So every time someone's on Product Hunt, I look at the interesting ones, look at the ones with the most engagement, look at the ones that are good tools that no one's, no one's tapping on either, no one's really engaged with on Product Hunt, and look at what the founders are doing. And I then get in contact about, hey, can we have a chat? This looks interesting. And then we found some interesting startups that way. So I feel like, do those things, go and hunt them out, go to the events, get the Product Hunt Chrome extension, go on LinkedIn, if a SaaS startup, if you notice that SaaS startups are just hiring and they haven't got any money in yet, they're probably about to raise some money or they've just raised some money, you can get in on the next round. There are little, there are ways that you can do this, right? The, the dark ways of the web and stuff, <laughs> so yeah. And final question, Andy. Um, how can people get hold of you? Hello. You can email me at Francesca. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I saw I did that once at an event with Andy at Andy and Nisa and then they got a bunch of emails. <laughs> um, so you can email me Andy Davis at backstagecapital.com. And anyone who comes through associated, I will more than happily speak with. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Um, Andy, do you want to add anything else to to the podcast? Thank you to Lois and Francesca for being super great host. <laughs> and making me feel so welcome. And it's been as exciting as I expected it to be. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show, Andy. We've absolutely loved the conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Associated today. You can find us on Twitter at associated underscore pod. And if you follow the link there to our anchor page, you can send us a voice message if you have a question for a guest. Or if you're a little bit shy, you can send us a note to associatedpodcast at gmail.com. And wherever you listen to Associated, please don't forget to subscribe and follow us.